What is going on, guys? Today, you are going to hear an episode of me interviewing Jeff Nipper. Jeff is a uh, professional Canadian natural bodybuilder, so he's drug-free, which is awesome. And he actually um, does raw powerlifting as well. So he's been on both spectrums. He is a shorter guy. He's five foot five, but I want to say he's 165 pounds. And if you go check him out on Instagram or YouTube, he also has his bachelor degree in biochemistry. So his whole philosophy is not only muscle growth and fat loss, but it's a lot around the science based on those things and how to accomplish that. So um, today you're going to hear me ask him some questions about his childhood growing up, what got him into it, um, who he wants to sit on a plane with to Japan. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about muscle growth, fat loss, uh, nutrition, macros versus intuitive dieting. We're going to talk about a lot of good stuff. Unfortunately, my co-host Theo Bowie was not here today. Um, long story short, we do not know how to work Skype very well, and we will improve that in the future, but you are going to hear me uh, talk to Jeff in this podcast, interviewing him about all of the above. So I hope you guys like it, and uh, let us know if you want to hear more of these kind of episodes. We'll start the show with just kind of going over who is Jeff Nippard. Kind of tell the audience about who you are. Sure. Well, Cody, first, thanks for uh, inviting me on the show. It's a real pleasure to be here. I'm excited to talk to you about some stuff. Um, so, yeah, Jeff Nippard uh, is my name. Um, I'm a Canadian natural pro bodybuilder, uh, which means I just compete in an organization that tests for a bunch of banned substances like steroids, um, certain stimulants, growth hormone, insulin, all that kind of stuff isn't allowed. Um, and I'm also a raw power lifter, uh, so I compete in the CPU, which is sanctioned under the IPF uh, as a 74 kilo lifter. Um, I've squat 500 pounds, uh, bench pressed 370, and I've deadlifted at my best 550 pounds at around 165 pounds body weight. Uh, so um, I have passions for both, but I would consider myself to sort of be a bodybuilder first and, and a powerlifter second, even though I've competed uh, in both equally. Um, I also have a bachelor's degree in biochemistry. Uh, so what I try to do in my professional life is sort of blend together my academic background and sort of education with a in-field approach to coaching bodybuilders, powerlifters, and then some just general population folks uh, in terms of building muscle, losing fat, gaining strength. Um, and that's pretty much it. I also run an uh, informative YouTube channel where I sort of document my own journey in fitness along with uh, scientific information to keep it uh, useful for people who like to watch. And I also run a podcast. It's called Ice Cream for PRs. And um, there I interview expert nutritionists, coaches, um, trainers, and uh, researchers, and also just elite level athletes to try to try to again blend together the sort of practical infield stuff with more of the the theory. So um, yeah, that's what I'm all about. So speaking before I get into the other question, I just watched a YouTube video of yours. Cool. You did a ten thousand calorie challenge. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and and one of the things you were saying in there is is I think. And I agree with this completely. People kind of go into it like, oh, I would love if only I could eat 10,000 calories and not get fat or whatever it is. I don't feel like it would be as pleasurable as some people seem to think it is. So how was that? Oh, man, not, not only was it not pleasurable, it was it was one of the most excruciating things I think I've done. <laughs> um, it, like it, it was so to actually my my roommate uh, attempted it two days ago and failed. 
And so I've got to give him a hard time about that because I was like, I was dying at like 5,000 calories because like my, my typical daily intakes probably between like 2,500 and 3,000 calories per day. Um, so even just getting to 5,000, I found really tough. Like I was so full. Um, and so then after that, I think it got to the point where it was 8.30 at night and I still had 6,000 calories left to eat um, for the day. So I like ordered a large pizza with like all the toppings on it. And I ended up having to drink my calories because I just wouldn't have been able to eat it. I, right. I don't think without puking it up. So I basically blended up uh, two pints of Ben and Jerry's. Um, like, like it ended up being like half a cup of coconut oil, half a jar of Nutella and like all this together. Oh my God. But it was so, it was so bad. Like it was just such an interesting experience because like when you watch the videos online, it looks like, like you said, you know, it's like, that would be fun to just like eat all that junk food or whatever. But having that feeling of being really full is, is a pretty bad one. (laughs) So anyway, yeah, it's not something I plan to do again, but at the very least I like, got a somewhat entertaining video out of it that apparently a lot of people appreciated because I didn't only just do the challenge. I sort of like integrated um, some information about how uh, the body responds to overfeeding and like how much fat you can store in one day. Um, how many, how many calories can you absorb? That like was, I sort of answered those questions right. in between the clips. Yeah. That's what was surprising to me because I mean, everybody knows like furious Pete, the guy just runs through baby sized burritos all day and everything. And it's awesome. Right. But I've never seen anybody like calculate it out. And it's funny too. So if anybody out there listening to this doesn't know, Jeff's doing my coaching right now for a show that I plan to do in about five and a half, six months. And you gave me a diet break recently, right? And you bumped my carbs up to 275. And even that, I was like, well, shit, what am I going to eat? Like, how am (laughs) I going to fill these up now? Because I'm so used to like kind of planning my day around the lower amount. So I can't even imagine 10,000 calories, man. That's that's crazy. Right. Was your body hurting for days? Did you do a fast the next day or anything like that? I I pretty much did a fast the next day. Um, I like, um, I pretty much ate like just very light. Like I ate like kale and chicken. Like that was all I wanted. I couldn't even stomach thinking about eating anything other than that. And then even, even the next day, so like two days after, and then also three days after, my appetite was very low. Like I would say, I would say, one day after I probably ate maybe five, 600 calories that day. And then, because that's all I, like, yeah. I would not want to go near food. Um, and then the day after that, I probably ate maybe like, f- maybe 1500, maybe. And then the day after that, it was still like, I had very low appetite. I would say maybe, maybe 2000. And then from there I was, I mean, I was back to my normal body weight, I think after the, the second or third day. Um, so I had gained, I had gained, I think it was three and a half pounds or something, which does, which was surprisingly not that much. Um, and then over the course of the next three days, it just went right back to normal. And then do I just you, ate normally. Do you think that your weekly total calories were not far off or were they probably still pretty high? Well, I didn't actually calculate it out, but I would say that when you account for all of the stuff that I accounted for in the video, like the increase in, in spontaneous activity and thermic effective food and all of that, I would say it was offset really easily in two days. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. If anybody hasn't checked that out, go go on his YouTube. It's just Jeff Nippard, right? That's right. It's awesome video. So, um, the next question I had is, uh, what kind of? Go- I always like to get people's story behind things. So, what actually got you into lifting? We all kind of have this 
this beginning what got us into the weight room and everything some earlier than others so i'm curious to hear i've heard you mention a couple things but i haven't really heard you dive into the story so kind of give us a background of what actually got it all started sure yeah uh, well for me um i i started out i guess my athletic journey uh first in martial arts so i got a black belt in taekwondo when i was 14 years old i think um and my uncle my dad's brother was the coach of the Canadian Olympic team uh, for Taekwondo and still is. Uh, so that was my sort of first athletic passion. And then incidentally, uh, at what was called the Black Belt Club when I was competing in Taekwondo, uh, it was just where Black Belt sort of uh, practice uh, different self-defense techniques. Right. Um, we would usually end with uh, a scrimmage of basketball. And I was so bad. I remember once I shot... Like I, sh I took a shot and it went, it just cleared the whole backboard <laughs> and I was like, I was a really small kid and, and I was always really short. So like I was kind of like, I guess irritated by the fact that I was like so bad at this and I used to hate going to the belt, black belt club because we'd always play basketball or whatever. Um, so I got my dad to help me. I think we bought a, like one of those sort of makeshift driveway nets or whatever. Um, and I started practicing and I started, well, that was around the time I started working on my vertical leap. Um, so all of my training was centered towards just being able to jump higher. Um, so I did, when I, was, when I was 15, I got in the gym because I did this special course where you could get in early. So like locally at my community, you had to be 16 years old at the time in order to sign up for a gym membership. And, uh, but if you did this special course, you could start at 15. Um, so I started at 15. Um, but a lot of my training was plyometric training um, set towards improving my vertical leap. Uh, so I ran through all these jump programs like uh, back then. I don't even know if they're still popular or people do these, but I ran through Air Alert 1, 2, and 3. Um, and I did a ton of jump roping and uh, a, a squatting and lower body training was sort of like what I wanted to do because I wanted to improve my jump for basketball. And... Uh, so I guess people can't see me on the podcast, but I'm I'm five foot five, and I have a five foot two I think inch wingspan. So like I have very short arms. Um, so uh, it was a goal of mine to be able to dunk, and uh, I, I never was able to do it with a basketball, but I could do it with a volleyball, and I could get my whole palm over the the rim of, wow. the, of a ten foot net at five foot five. Um, I'm so, five ten, and I can't. I can barely even touch yeah, the rim. Yeah, so. I mean, I wouldn't be able to now at all. But this was back when I was, I don't know. 30 pounds lighter or Man. something. And it's funny too. I, it's too bad Theo's not here for this because he's, he grew up playing basketball. That's his whole story. Oh, for real? <laughs> I'm the yeah. worst basketball player in the world. <laughs> so like we'll go play pickup games and it's, it's, it's a joke. But, um, but he actually started with some of the same old school programs in his backyard doing that stuff with his dad yeah, when yeah, he was that yeah. age. Yeah, that's the same stuff I used to do. And like I used to hook up this was another jump thing that I did. I don't know if any of your listeners are interested in this sort of athletic stuff, but this was actually really helpful for me. I, I set up a styrofoam cup from my ceiling in my basement because um, I was super short, so like I couldn't go up to the ceiling. Um, and uh, so I hung that from the ceiling, and I would prac I would run in and jump and try to touch the cup, and I worked on it until I could t touch it, and then. Once I could do that, I took the scissors to the cup and like cut it off like half an inch around the styrofoam cup, and then I would jump up and go until I did that, and then I continued to do that until I was able to like remove the cup altogether and just hit the ceiling. Um, and I forget what the ceiling it must have been like a, a nine foot ceiling or something. This is like, like that. a fifteen year old applying progressive overload. To exactly, <laughs> and it was like sort of the beginning of progressive overload, yeah. right? 
Um, so that even if you just do something simple like that, right, like without the fancy plyometrics, like just you want to get better at jumping, just like jump more and set a goal, like and then progressively work towards it, right? right. Um, so then once I got to the ceiling, I, I like had my net, which was adjustable, and then I would move that up and down, and I used to try to dunk on like a lower net and then a slightly higher net and so on. Um, and I but think yeah. that's, dude, like so many people overcomplicate things, I think, and with yeah, lifting. Yeah. And it's funny because so when I first started at our gym, this is five years ago, um, when I first got into the gym, everything was mere muscles, and that's just what I did. So when I got in there, my boss, who was my mentor and coach, was having me deadlift and do a lot of posterior chain stuff. So they called me, my, my last name is Mick Broom, they called me Mick Littleback for the longest time, and it just drove <laughs> me crazy. So I went to like Ross or something, I got a chin-up thing for my door. Yep. And it was the same thing. Every time I walked by, I had to do a chin-up. And then eventually yep. it was like two chin-ups. And then it, eventually That's it was three, right? And it was the same yep. exact concept. But to just yep. grow my back. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and you're right. Like that's that's the sort of stuff that it's just like – you you have the grit right it's like you know like you want to get it better it's like very simple you go get your own chin up bar and just do what do what it takes and you can get a lot of results that way man without any of the like fancy programming or or fancy equipment or any, any of that stuff really so. so so how did that turn into professional bodybuilding because right. obviously that sounds like you know kind of black you're a black belt at what 14 yeah that's pretty yeah. crazy especially for a small guy right and then yeah. um, well i wouldn't say small anymore but short guy i was a short guy yeah and then basketball and then that turned into bodybuilding yeah before powerlifting um, or vice versa no bodybuilding first so okay. i after taekwondo i got really into basketball because i started to get good at it um and i ended up being the captain on my high school team um and i played point guard uh and i, I initially had wanted to play uh, basketball for my university um, but I realized that this was around the same sort of time that I realized that my genetic endowments were better suited for bodybuilding than, than basketball right. um, it's really tough for a guy under six foot to make it um, at, at the college level um, and so I noticed that at this point I had started you know, doing a lot more upper body training and just hypertrophy training in general because uh, my parents are both very into bodybuilding um, recreationally. So there was sort of always like bodybuilding magazines around my house and I, th I thought that it was weird. Like I, I was not attracted to it whatsoever. Um, I would say until maybe my last year in high school when I was you know, around 18 or, or whatever, I started to be like, hmm, maybe I could compete in this and do well because it's pretty easy for me to put on muscle. Um, so you had pretty good genetics as a kid? Yeah, I had good genetics. Like even when I used to play basketball in junior high school, like if I would wear a tank top, I'd often get, you know, people commenting on my shoulders or my calves, like my calves are basically the size they are now. They've always been that way, really. It's it's largely genetic for those body parts like my shoulders and calves especially. Like I had scrawny arms and like no chest and, and that sort of thing, but I uh I had those muscles and I was always lean because I was athletic. So, um I realized that like I should play to my talents as an athlete and, and you know develop what is a strong point for me. So I sort of got away from basketball after high school and got really, really into bodybuilding, which was the next thing for me. Um, and I did my first show then at 19 in my first year of university, I think it was. Um, maybe it was my second year. And uh, Wow, so you yeah. went through prep while studying at a university? Yeah, I always did. Um, I did a provincial contest 
in 2009. That was my first show, um, and I won the junior division there. Then I did the same show again the next year uh, while in school, um, and then I did Canadian Nationals in 2012 in the last year of my undergrad. And I remember I was one week out, so like my peak week was lined up with my final exam schedule. So like I wrote my last God. final on like the Tuesday of peak week or something, and then I flew out Wednesday uh, to do national. So it was like, yeah, it was just academics and bodybuilding was something that I, I always just was quite good at balancing. And how old are you right now? I just turned 26 in October. Okay. Yeah. So that wasn't, I mean, that was what, three, four years ago? Yeah, the nationals was 2012. Okay. Uh, so that was four years ago. And then since then, I, I turned pro actually uh, in 2014 while I was in dental school. Um, so I've always, almost always prepped uh, while being a student. Um, so that, since, that first yeah. one was probably before the whole flexible dieting craze, I'm assuming. Yeah. So yeah. it was probably even more brutal because you were probably carrying around a bunch of tubboards of plain ass food. Yeah. I mean, I never, I never took on the like victim mentality though. I kind of just like embraced it as like, this is something that I want to do. This is a goal of mine. And I just really like, I guess, embraced that grind of like, you know, you got to eat your meals at this time and they've got to be, and in some ways it made it a little bit easier because I was able to be so regimented with everything. It was like, you know, I, I train from, or like I eat this meal at like 7am, the next meal at 10am, the next meal at 1pm, whatever. It was always the same exact thing. And then I train from five to six PM. It's one hour because if you train longer than one hour, you're going to go catabolic or whatever. <laughs> um, and then after that, I would have my evenings to study uh, and and so on. So in a way, it, it made it a little bit easier to have a, a little bit more of a regimented approach. Um, because when flexible dieting came into play in 2012 for me, um, I found I. I occupied a lot of my time with making like the perfect meal and trying right. to what I would fit into my macros and all this. So it, it can be a little bit more time consuming in some cases. Yeah. But for all that, I still think it's better. So, so right now you're primarily, or maybe this is all you do um, as far as income goes is being an online coach. Were you ever in person training or has it always been strictly online? Yeah, I, I did some, some in-person training. Uh, I find um, not, not a whole lot. I did some at a, a local YMCA, um, and I did. I, I still coach people at events, and I'll coach some clients who are local, um, just at the gym. Um, but I don't work at a gym as a trainer. Right. Um, most of it is all online, um, and yeah, I find it. There are certain things that I really miss about in-person coaching. Um, I like being able to establish that connection and sort of like modify what it is people are doing in, in three dimensions in real time. Um, yeah. Because one, you know, as I'm sure you know, one of the limitations of online coaching is just that getting feedback can be such a arduous process. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah. So how did the online coaching start? Did you just decide one day that you and I know your niche is primarily bodybuilding, and in that sense, it is easier to have that niche within that that type of structure did you just decide one day you saw somebody else doing it you just got inspiration you like to travel what was like the the changing point that made you go i'm going to take this online and only online yeah good question i mean i um i was in school to be a dentist so i had no interest in pursuing this as a career um i uh actually began it in 2000 and 
2010, I think, was when I first started coaching. So it's been six years, and that wasn't really online. It was kind of just like a distance thing. It was like, here's your diet, here's right. your training program, let's prep you for this show. Um, and that was my first client uh, back then. And then since then, I think like the next year at the low, like everything that I was doing was on a local scale. So I hadn't started to reach people worldwide at all at this point. Um, I just had like a small handful of clients for the local show because I knew how to get lean myself. And so I kind of just applied what worked for me to them. Um, and then what, what really changed it for me was when I hired uh, Lane Norton as a coach in, for nationals in 2012. And I sort of saw how it was he dealt with you know making changes to the diet and doing updates and all the sort of stuff that you do as an online coach. Um, and so then it was at that point that I started coaching more people online, but it was mo still mostly all local. Um, and then when I was in dentistry school, uh, I was doing this part-time, but I still handled around 20 clients online uh, while in school. And um, from there, it was mostly through, I think, word of mouth marketing that it started to really take off because people were having good experiences with me um, as a coach. And so I ended up working with quite a lot of people um, just in my sort of area geographically. Um, and then after that, I signed a contract with a coaching group that was already quite established, uh, the Strength Guys. I'm not sure if you're familiar with yep. their stuff or not. Um, so I coached with them for a year before branching out on my own, starting my own coaching business, uh, which is what I do currently. And so I guess what transitioned it from a very local group of people who were coached by me to more of like the international venture that it is now uh, was just... I guess putting myself out there um, on on YouTube and social media platforms and really providing value in terms of scientific information. Um, so I started doing a lot of informative videos, which I think helped establish myself as an authority on these sort of topics to do with training and nutrition. And then from there, it really, yeah, it really just started to snowball over the, the next two years or so. And that was like kind of my next question: is how did you build it up to what it is now? Because but it sounds like you didn't it, you didn't really have any I feel like a lot of people who have a successful business in this sense don't have a specific plan of like I'm going to do this then this and I'm going to start marketing through this and yeah. it kind of just happens as you put content out because if you actually are passionate about this stuff exactly. you end up just like putting out a lot of content right yeah, I, I guess that was what what happened, and I never did it with the intention of trying to get clients. Um, surprisingly enough, it was sort of like I want to do this video because I don't know. I'm like genuinely interested in discovering this and sharing it with people. Um, so I would do a video, and then I would just sort of shout out my coaching at the end or whatever. Um, but yeah, I, I I don't know that I had a general plan, or even if I had a direction for where I saw things going. Um, honestly, it was just something that I was really uh, really passionate about, like you said, and the big step for me was just changing career paths. So when I did that, I sort of realized like, well, if I'm not going to have this like solid career where I make, you know, X figures each year, now I really need to put something into this and, yeah. and make it work. So I, I put, you know, that much more effort into building it. Um, even if I didn't really know at the time what exactly it was that I was doing, um, it, I still managed to to find my way with it, I suppose. So, and before I go to the next question, I'm, your coaching business is it's called Strong, right? That's right. Yeah. Why is there a C? Because it's S T R C N G, right? 
Yeah, the, the C the C stands for coaching. So okay. um, it's it's really like it's a trademark issue. So like there's so many businesses now that I can't just call it strong coaching with an O, right? Yeah, so yeah. like you have all these businesses like um, uh, gee, I, I'm not, I'm probably not gonna be able to come up with an example now off the top of my head, but um, it, you have so many businesses that will like drop a letter or like like Lyft for the Uber, like you know yep. you've heard of Uber. Yep. There's Lyft, right? And it's like L Y F T. Yeah, yeah. Like why do they use the Y? It's like I don't know, just because Lyft with an I is obviously taken. Right. Um, so <laughs> that was kind of what that was. Um, but when um, when I started this, I had initially planned on releasing clothing at the the same time so it was kind of like coaching clothing um but i've i've since put that on the back burner i've been sponsored by another clothing company that i pr promote now which is rise um and so uh the i just say that the c stands for for coaching but it's it's interesting when uh <laughs> when dealing with it, it like with lawyers and accountants and stuff because they're just like oh i think you got a typo there and i was like no it's yeah. <laughs> it's on purpose well i got lucky with my nickname's always been cody boom boom so hey yeah, i wouldn't say that i true. go i go to the bank or like with my county he was like dude what the hell is boom boom performance and i'm like oh, good, it's a long story <laughs> so yeah um so i wanted to talk a little bit about nutrition a lot of people know that that's kind of like my favorite thing to talk about my niche um we have a lot of people who I train a lot of people that we follow macros because it's an easy way to set up things. Now we have a lot of people that fall more into the intuitive eating side of things, more so of the reason being that macros stress them out, right? Because as you know, we have a lot of lifestyle clients as well. So sometimes people, they just don't want to get on my fitness pal every day and they see it as a burden and a stress. Um, I think it's a, it's a personality type thing for me it's easier to do that and I feel like I have more flexibility whereas some people feel it's the, the exact opposite and they obsess and they can't focus on ranges, whatever it may be. How do you bridge that gap with your clients? Do your clients all follow macros or do you, cause it seems like you have a pretty good way yourself personally doing intuitive eating, which may be a result of tracking macros for such a long time or, or what's your opinion on that? Yeah, man, that's a, that's a great question. So first my clients, I would say almost all of them follow some sort of, uh, if it fits your macros or like flexible dieting type approach. So I don't have anyone that follows a meal plan. Um, I, I used to do this as an option. Um, I would be like, you know, if you really don't want to track macros and you just want a meal plan, I can do that uh, for you. Um, but I found it to be logistically difficult as a coach because if, say, I actually prepped a national level competitor using a meal plan approach. Um, and uh, But what I would have to do is say we had to make reductions in their calories over time, that's kind of hard to do on a yeah. meal plan, right? So I would have to be like, okay, you're going to cut this tablespoon of peanut butter in half now, yeah. <laughs> like stuff like that. And it was just like, it was really tough to do as a coach and time consuming. And I feel like it's kind of like a cheat way. It's like almost like they're not set up now with the tools to be successful next time unless they follow exactly this plan again next time. Exactly. There's um, no sustainability with that, right? Right. So I stopped doing that. Um, I don't do it anymore. Now what I do is I send out a couple sample meal plans to give them an idea yep. of, of what sort of foods they should eat. But I don't give out a set meal, like follow this sort of thing. Um, and so most people will follow uh, an approach where I give them macros and they follow them. Um, depending on the goal and depending on the preferences of the client, uh, I will either set this up as here are your three macros, try to hit them as close as you can, which usually means like within five grams up or down for protein and carbs and up or down two or three grams for fats yep. uh, every day. And that's, that's about as, that's the most precise I'll get. Um, from there, other clients, I'll have them uh, just hit a calorie and a protein goal only 
Um, so in this case, you would try to hit your calories within plus or minus about 50 calories uh, and then hit your protein intake as a minimum. And then the carbs and fats can sort of fall within any sort of range that you, that you like according to what foods you like as long as, you know, the carbs aren't like below 100 grams. Right. Fats don't get, you know, above 100 grams sort of thing. Um, as long as you're in, you know, a general ballpark, just hit your calories, hit your protein, you're good. Um, and a lot of people find that to be uh, a little bit more flexible lifestyle-wise uh, because if you want to have a high-fat meal out or something, it's not like, ah, I'm going to go over my 50 grams of fat. You can kind of be like, okay, I can have 100 grams of fat today as long as I like bring the carbs down. Yeah. Sort of thing. And it just gives you a whole ton of flexibility in that way. Um, and then I have some clients who I've set up on a five-day week um, IFYM type approach. And then on the weekends, they practice intuitive eating. And I found that this is a good sort of like transition into like full-blown intuitive eating, uh, which I've done with a few clients. Um, but what I find ends, ends up happening is they just let go of the coaching uh, because it's like they feel like they can do it on their own, which is great. Um, it, it tends to be something that people can monitor on their own if they're doing it right. And so as soon as they feel the need not to need me anymore, then um, usually they just take things over. So that's been my experience with it. I, it was cool to hear you say that actually because I kind of break mine down in those those levels as well. Oh, interesting. Um, I tend to do the – for a lot of my clients, I actually just have a calorie and protein goal simply because they don't have a show coming up. They don't have right. a deadline. And if they don't, I feel like those are the two most important things. Exactly. I agree. W when do you decide that it is really, really important to decide how – Decide where to put their carbs and fats. Decide where to bridge the gap between just doing protein and calories and then full-blown mm. macros. Right. I think that anyone who doesn't have a show like immediately on the horizon, so say within, I don't know, 16 to 20 weeks of a, a, a contest prep, um, I think that they can do the, the calorie and protein only approach just fine. Um, Again, it, it will depend on the preferences of the person. So some people just really like knowing exactly what they're putting in. They kind of want to give it everything they've got. I want my nutrition to be completely on point. And that's totally fine, right? So it really does depend on the goal. But uh, anyone inside of 20 weeks, I'll usually be like, okay, we need to, we need to hit everything at this point right. if we're going to bring your best. Yeah. Um, so so that's, that's what I do there. Um, and then most most of everybody else, I give them an option. So like if I'm dealing with a powerlifter or a physique athlete in their off-season or uh, just a general population person, I'll say some people really like hitting everything dead on and that keeps them motivated and it keeps them accountable. So if you want to do that, do it. Uh, however, if you would like to try this approach where you'll have a little bit more flexibility, um, you can do it. And in my experience, there's about an even. Like a lot of surprising number of people that work with me really want to hit everything, uh, all the three macros. And I have no bias towards it. I don't do that myself. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, what you want from someone or what you want in terms of an approach is one that's going to allow them to be most adherent. Yeah. So that's, that is a big consideration there. Couldn't agree more. So, um, would you say that, do you think everybody should track macros at some point? I get a lot of people that I feel like there's people that go in so polar opposites that people think that you have to be so dead on when I don't agree with completely because how do we truly know that every single piece of food you're eating is 100% accurate to what my fitness pal tells you which we know yeah. is not true yeah. and then there's the people that think that tracking is completely irrelevant because every day is different stress levels all right. these different things where do you like where do you fall in between the two do you think everybody should do it at least once or I I kind of do um I I mean I'm 
let me think here. So I think that people should do it if not if not even for the sake of losing weight, just as a learning tool. Like just get used to knowing what's in different foods. So like if you have someone who comes to you and they're like they have no knowledge of nutrition and they're like, I want to lose weight. I mean, like, you know, you can go either way on this. I feel like maybe it would just depend on the person, but people like that can oftentimes lose weight just by eliminating something from their diet. Very obvious. It's like, have a look at what you're eating. Just pay attention to it and notice that every night before you go to bed, you have a Dr. Pepper and a bag of Doritos. Right. It's like, could you replace that with maybe like a diet Dr. Pepper and a bag of sun chips or something, right? Like just like something a little bit lower, right? And that will get them moving. If I told that person, okay, you need to download this app, you need to register for a profile, you need to track, you scan the barcode of everything that you're, it might just be too much. Yeah. And so oftentimes what I hear is that people will be like, yeah, no, but you should start tracking macros so you get a, a feel for it and then you can transition into it. Well, I think it really just depends on that person's nutritional IQ. So if it's very, very low, that's probably not the best starting place. It's probably best just to like be like, you know what, start walking two or three times a week after work, like make these small changes yeah. kind of thing. Um, but you know, if we're assuming that we're dealing with people who are like relatively well versed in you know protein, they know what the macros are, and they sort of like have a general idea of how to yeah. eat healthfully and so on, um, then I would say it's a good idea just so that you can get familiar with. Like some people might not have any idea what the macronutrient profile of a half a cup of oatmeal is, yeah. and you, you might only learn that by by tracking it for a little bit. Um, so it, it's not a bad idea. I think that MyFitnessPal is really useful as a learning tool, um, if not as a weight loss tool for everyone. Um, and so having some idea, however it is you learn that, of what it is that's in foods is smart before adopting more of an intuitive approach, um, especially for, for bodybuilders and, and people with physique-related goals. Um, and so you can also – you don't necessarily, I, I guess, have to track it. You can kind of just be – more attuned to food labels, you know, have a look at foods before you get them, have guidelines for shopping and what you sort of look for, like low fat foods would be a good idea for most people trying to, to lose weight and yeah, just become a little bit more savvy about macronutrient profiles in general. And I think that's my, I mean, that's the big thing right there is when we see people that have a good amount of weight to lose, I'll just have them track whether it's on a piece of paper or my fitness pal, mm. because that builds awareness and accountability, right? And yeah. then slowly they realize that shit, I don't want to put that on the the yeah. food log and then because they know I'm going to look at it or when the exactly. end of the week comes, I'm like, Hey, what can we improve? Right. They're telling me what they think and can improve. And then I'm not barking orders at them. Right. Yeah. So which helps them ad- yeah. adhere to it longer. Yeah. Um, yeah. so let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about training. Um, I'd like to hear your opinion on low intensity versus high intensity. I, we have a lot of high intensity people that okay. are surround our gym and everything simply because when I have a client work with me at the facility, they're training with me sometimes once, twice, three times tops a week, just because prices obviously go really high when you're working with a private coach. Some of them do smaller group training. Like I run a group called strength camp, which is strictly for guys. And it's it's a smaller group of guys, uh, but still on the higher end price wise. So a lot of them jump in these high intensity metabolic classes throughout the week. Then they're training six days a week at a, at a higher intensity. But I would say three to four of those are more metabolic based. So they're not lifting super heavy. Then I get clients that 
transition to the online and I have them lifting four or five days a week and I have them do low intensity and they're confused as to why they're doing low intensity versus high intensity because, and I think I, I had this issue way back is like, I just wanted to ramp everything up every single day. Like I just wanted to right. get after it. So where do you stand with that? Because like, I know you have me doing low intensity and no high intensity right now, mm. primarily because I'm playing soccer as well. Yeah. Um, but where do you find like, it's good to implement high intensity versus low intensity and why? When, when you say intensity, are you talking about are you talking about cardio or are you talking about cardio cardio oh, okay but, cardio. and that's the hard part i think too is people don't realize that um if we're strength training resistance training lifting weights in a sense that it has the same effect as yeah. going and running sprints or kettlebell swings exactly. intervals assault bike whatever it is right um so yeah good, good question so um i use cardio as a tool mostly just to increase the weekly deficit um so i think that that's how it should be viewed um that can be different for different athletes, but within the context of physique and strength athletes, I think that that's how cardio should be, be used as a tool. Um, endurance athletes are, are a different, different animal. Um, but I think that, uh, the thing with, with low intensity, steady state cardio is that it's very easy to recover from. Um, so you're very unlikely to have it interfere with your resistance training goals in terms of performance and in terms of hypertrophy. Uh, Whereas with high intensity interval training, um, depending on the intensity of it and the frequency of it and the mode, uh, so like what piece of equipment you're using, if any, um, it really can interfere with uh, your resistance training. And since the goal as a bodybuilder is to be as jacked as you can be, you really want your capacity to recover to be going into your weight training and not your cardiovascular training. Um, so that's how I see it. Um, furthermore, I think high intensity interval training is, as you sort of alluded to, a little bit redundant past a certain point. So if you have any kind of metabolic work in your weight training, like anything over say 12 reps, um, you're getting a very similar effect there as you would from a few sprints or something. Um, because when you think about it, when you sprint, you're kind of going all out for, I don't know, 10 to 30 seconds. When you do a relatively high rep set, say 12 reps or something like that. Um, usually that will last, you know, 10 to 30 seconds right. and you all out and then you rest for two, three minutes and then you go again. Uh, so this mimics the effect of high intensity interval training to a large degree. And so if I do include it, um, it it's usually, uh, I, I will, I will include it. I usually don't go over one time per week. Um, and it's usually in people who I am very confident that they're adequately recovering from their program. So usually maybe people who are only able to train three times a week or four times a week or something like that for their cardio, I'll be way more likely to give them a session or two of hit than the list. Right. And so the obvious advantage of including some high intensity interval training is that you get a lot more bang for your buck. So you can get in and out really quick. So for people who have demanding schedules or maybe people who get very bored by doing a lot of lists uh, or like I said for people who have less demanding resistance training programs um, hit is a very easy way for them to burn a ton of calories in 15 20 minutes uh, whereas if they were to do that with lists it might take them you know a little bit longer so so uh, yeah. what because it's safe to say that you tend to follow the list if, if it's a if it's a physique oriented athlete exactly. what is your opinion on muscle loss there because i feel like that is the biggest fear of everybody they have to take bcas before they they're afraid okay. to do any um i've heard at right after strength training if you do lists um 
it, it can reduce muscle protein synthesis. You're going to go catabolic. You're not getting the same effects, all these things. I know for me personally, that's when I like to do mine because I don't mind mm-hmm. cooling down, going on a walk and reading or programming while I'm on the treadmill or the bike. What's your opinion there? Do you think that's just kind of hype and myth or? Yeah, I, I really do. I mean, like the, I think that where this myth comes from is the fact that there are two competing pathways. Uh, one is sort of inherently catabolic or it basically breaks down tissues. The other is inherently anabolic. And those are the resistance training and endurance training pathways. And so the resistance training pathway activates mTOR and then a bunch of genes responsible for upregulating muscle protein synthesis. And, and that's basically what builds muscle. Um, on the other hand, you have the endurance pathway, which um, activates the AMPK pathway, which then activates all these proteins responsible for breaking down proteins. And so it's like thought that that's going to tear apart all your muscle and and so on. And then not only that, the AMPK pathway actually inhibits the muscle building pathway um, when you look at it on a molecular level. Um, But the reality is, is that sometimes what is going on on a molecular scale, it can't map onto what happens in the full body. And so you can't always extrapolate that that information out. Um, and so when you look at full body uh, studies, um, you tend to not see a very significant interference between muscle building and uh, endurance training um, until you overdo it. And it, like I said, kind of said earlier, it's it's really dependent on how much you're doing, how much you're doing it, um, how, what the intensity is, and uh, what the mode is. And so what is most likely to interfere with muscle building or, or what have you is um, exercise that's, that's actually very intense. Um, so the low intensity would actually be better um, than doing a lot of high intensity. Uh, the frequency, so the more that you do it, the more likely it is to interfere. And the mode, uh, so things like running are actually more likely to interfere with muscle building than um, things like swimming or lower impact movement. Uh, so like an elliptical or a bike would be lower impact than, uh, than sprints. Um, so I, I'm not concerned about muscle loss with, with adding lists until it gets to a point that's excessive and then you run the risk of, of breaking down muscle tissue. Um, but you need to, the, the, the main issue with that line of thinking is that it thinks about muscle as like an on and off switch. It's like, it's either, it's either being broken down and you're losing muscle and then it's gone forever or you're building it and it's there to stay but muscle is always being turned over it's you're either you know you know you're you're laying down muscle proteins you're burning them off this is just the way it goes and so sure you might burn uh some or liberate some amino acids what have you uh, and oxidize those during um a list session after training but what you need to look at is the full 24-hour picture and what's going on and are you net? Is there more time spent in an anabolic state than there is in a catabolic state? And that's what really matters. Um, so these acute changes around the workout really aren't all that significant. And what should, what should be most important is making sure that your total daily protein intake is adequate. That's very important. Making sure that there's a progressively overloading stimulus in place with the resistance training. Um, and making sure that you're not losing weight too fast. Right. If you have those three things in place, then you don't you don't need to worry about muscle loss too much. You don't need to ha- slam the BCA shakes and all that kind of stuff. It, it's it's really not a warranted concern. And I think people look at it as in that little time frame, and they forget to look at it week after week, month after exactly. month, year exactly. after year for that. Um, and one thing I noticed actually through my coaching career is once I implemented 
more list, less hit, and a little bit more of the RPE scale and just um, mm -hmm. looking at, instead of the client assuming that they have to add five pounds to the bar, they have to add, right. let's look at the RPE and just focus on that. I've actually yeah. had to use less deloads. I've had people more yep. adherent and in the gym more frequently for a longer period of time. And yep. I think at the end of the day, that's what's gonna lead to the result they want anyway. Exactly. So if we can exactly. keep them in the gym. Yeah, and, and that's, that's an important thing too. I, I have some people who are like, Jeff, like I hate lists. It's like it's brutal, and I'm kind of like this. You know, like makes me want to claw my eyes, eyeballs out sometimes. It's like I've got like an hour of list to do. Like, what am I going to do yeah. during that? Right. So sometimes it's just people are more adherent if you give them hit. In which case, it's like it would be silly to bicker over like you know all of these like pros and cons. It's like, no, you like it better. You're going to stick to it better. That's what we're doing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, no, totally agree. Totally agree. So one one last question I wanted to talk to you about is being able to transition um, from bodybuilding and you've done photo shoots and stuff like that like shows into the off season without binging and losing your progress because we see this a lot and I've and I've actually had a lot of people stumble through the gym at, at ours that came in then they got the idea that they wanted to do a show and they left did their show they came back and they've added 40 pounds everything fall apart I've personally been there where I, I set myself up disaster with my last show I, I booked a cruise two days later <laughs> Same thing so like a week and I was like that was my first time I wasn't ready for it and, and I put on a lot of weight afterwards and, and yeah. luckily I work in a gym and I'm surrounded by so much accountability that I, I eventually got back and learned how to make this a lifestyle right. how do you go about not only yourself but with your clients to make that transition so people don't just fall off or or they can manage like adding a little bit of weight being okay with that and then and then figuring out that middle ground and balance after that yeah there's this is a huge can of worms because this is a, a difficult um this is a difficult topic just because so many people deal with it and um it's not easy like you're when you have that signal coming from your brain to to eat because you're so lean like it can be really really like i think it takes an unprecedented amount of willpower in some cases to really overcome that and so what i try to tell people is um recognize that like this is normal like there's not something wrong with you like I've dealt with this after more or less every show like I'm a pro and like I still deal with this to a pretty significant degree like I, I know a lot of people have really strong urges to binge after shows just because you know your body is not comfortable being at a very low body fat and so evolutionarily it wants you to survive it wants you to have more body fat for storage um, in case there's a, a period of, of starvation like we would we would see um, historically and so this is a natural response that your body's giving you and it's very normal like 98 99 percent of competitors will deal with this at, at some point or another um, so that is usually a little bit reassuring for people because sometimes people will be under the impression like I don't know what's wrong with me all I can right. do is think about food um, all I want to do is be oh last night I went and I bought a big bag of chips I don't know why I didn't want to I ate them all and it's like that's okay like you know everyone everyone goes through this um, so let's try to put it in the past if you've done it and now let's drop a plan to avoid this from happening um, down the road now what I do proactively ahead of time is I try to let them more or less like get this out of their system uh, for a, a little bit. So, um, you know, you've dieted for 20 to 24 weeks. Um, the night of the show, like it's a free for all. Like if you want to eat yourself sick, I'm not going to stop you from doing that. Um, and so I actually just say, you know, Friday or Saturday night after the show is uh, eat what you want. Um, 
people usually aren't able to eat as much as they think because their stomachs shrunk so much right. anyway. Right? One thing <laughs> so I was, it's this, not a problem. This sounds messed up, but one of the things I was thinking of is just giving them the 10,000 calorie challenge. Yeah. And you know be- what? They don't want to do it after that. That's true. Um, so usually after that, sometimes on Sunday, people are like, oh, like I feel gross. Like I just want to get back into like a normal eating structure. So what I usually will recommend for Sunday is to have like three to five square meals. Um, and they don't have to be clean meals. You can have what you want. Don't, don't restrict yourself. You don't need to track. Uh, but just eat square meals. So don't let Sunday be an all-day binge just where you're just craving, like going yeah. from the pop tarts to this to that, and it's just like out of control. Like eat a square meal, eat some protein. Like get you know get have this day be a transition day. And then I'll either do that again on Monday or on Monday I'll go back to to some kind of. Um, more set structure in turn. Usually it's just like having a calorie goal. And again, I usually try to encourage regular eating patterns. I, I try to make a bit of a bigger deal out of that than even hitting macros because I feel like that sort of keeps people on track. They can have their bigger meal, sort of satiate that desire to just like cram a lot of food in. And then when the meal's done, if you need more, like chug a bunch of water, like do what you have to take to sort of fill up do what you have to do to sort of fill up your stomach and then get on with your day uh, and don't uh, don't be constantly picking the whole right. day. So my, my goal for the first week is to kind of like establish some sort of like healthy eating behavior after the show that isn't too anal retentive and obsessive about macros because people tend to, to really get um, overly concerned with hitting those um, after a show and it, it really doesn't matter. It's about like making this landing as kind yeah. of like possible and that's kind of how i treat like a lifestyle client going on a week vacation or a four-day vacation just setting up and don't don't take my fitness pal out don't worry about anything you're eating but just have square meals and don't just snack Mm -hmm. all day and do everything and and i obviously that's i think where i went wrong on the cruise is just and we're drinking so that obviously yeah that doesn't help the whole thing but yeah it's it's definitely a tough one yeah but then you know binge eating even even if it's uh just a result of having gotten extremely lean is often quite complex. Uh, So there may be specific triggers that make you want to binge more than others. And so I think it's important to be sensitive to that. Um, So, you know, if you, uh, if there's oftentimes it's specific foods or it might be specific emotions, like if, if you're feeling, uh, down or, you know, uh, stressed or anxious or whatever, that might be a trigger for you to, um, to binge. And so it's important to be aware of those because then that's how you can deal with it. And, um, what I've found to be more effective than anything is, uh, actually, and this has been supported by the the literature is using a more acceptance based approach or a more of an intuitive approach. And so rather than trying to like force those feelings or those cravings down or, you know, distract yourself from them, uh, rather recognize and sort of accept that they're there and um, don't set up this sort of very rigid controls in terms of like I have to get rid of this food and I have to, you know, hit exactly these macros. Um, Being a little bit more sensitive to those things can help because uh, it, it allows you to be more sensitive to your internal environment generally. And so oftentimes what happens is people become so obsessed with the rigidity of like hitting their macros dead on or eating only these specific foods that they lose complete touch with 
their body's own hunger signals and satiety signals. Mm -hmm. And so if they have an emotional response to something that's happening in their personal life, um, they can be so out of touch with uh, their own perception of their own hunger and satiety that they just eat and eat and eat and don't stop because they're so focused on the external yeah. rather than the internal. And so, um, yeah, that's something that we can get into. But I feel like just having that skill set, even personally, as a result of having practiced intuitive eating is very helpful in preventing this sort of behavior, which um, can be a roller coaster. I think like a cheesy thing that people find it hard, like it's so simple, but it works really well. I've had a couple clients that experienced binging, um, not even from shows or anything, but emotional yeah. reasons, um, yeah. whether it's work, family stress. Yeah. is actually having a notepad or even using your phone, but writing down like when those binge episodes happen, like you said, instead of yeah. trying to fight them away, write down what's causing them or what's going on in your surroundings and your atmosphere that's creating the emotion yeah. that causes that anxiety or that, that exactly. need, right? And then we can figure out a pattern and figure out how to eliminate the pattern exactly rather than the binging episodes, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's a good idea. Um, I had a thought on that, but... It, I guess I oh, right. It was the fact that um, a lot of people don't recognize the fact that we actually have pretty limited control over our feelings and our emotions. Um, and this sort of acceptance-based approach is, is really um, catching on in all sorts of facets of medicine um, from you know, depression and uh, addictions of all different sorts. And it's gaining traction in the nutrition community in terms of being an effective way of just improving well-being generally, but also preventing eating disorder behavior, lowering body mass index, and so on. Um, and so if you're aware of the fact that you have this sort of limited control and you feel a craving or a thought arise, it's easier to recognize it for what it is. It's just another thought sort of arising rather than judging it and being like, you know, mm -hmm. this is something that I shouldn't be doing, like get away. And then you repress it or, or, um, distract yourself from it. Yeah. And this can have like, sort of like the, the reverse psychological effect of later making you really want it even more. And because you haven't practiced any sort of mindfulness of, uh, or awareness of your internal environment, uh, when that occasion arises that something blows up in your personal life, um, you're so, not attuned to your internal environment that you can just completely go off the rails and you know then then you've got a a, a 2000 calorie surplus spread right. throughout the week and you've set yourself back and that can be very demotivating and, and so on have, so have you ever heard yeah. of um the book it's a book called loving what is by byron katie there's an audio. She does speeches around the world. So this is a book that we read as a, as a group at my uh, gym, mm. all the trainers. And we actually give it to clients all the time when they suffer this stuff. And it, it literally goes through the judgments that go through your head and why right. it's actually okay to accept those judgments. Exactly. Exactly. And it comes with a worksheet and everything. And we also do what's called positive focus. So picking some random action of the day and, and looking at it from a sense of what happened, why is it positive, what's the lesson learned, how do you apply it. Mm. Um, which is hard for some people to do because if they have a binge episode, they get a divorce, something crazy happens. Why is it positive? Like it's mm. really hard to come up with, but that can actually help people quite a bit to become more aware and to just kind of calm down and incentive themselves before they go to sedations. Like, and whether it is food or drugs or whatever, you know what yeah. I mean? To, yeah. to feel better. Yeah. I haven't read it, but it, it sounds very in line with, I, I think what I've, what I've read in, in the scientific literature on the topic. Right. Yeah. So um, I think we're going to wrap it up now. I have one personality question for you. So sure. 
we like to do something like this on the podcast with people that are coming. So you're flying to, let's say, Japan. So you got a long flight ahead of you. Okay. You have two empty seats next to you. And you can <laughs> choose who is in those seats, but it can't be family, friends, or anybody you know. It can oh. be alive or dead. Who's sitting in those seats? Alive or dead. Oh, my God. Um, ooh. I would... Okay, so... Um, this is going to be an interesting answer. I, there's there's a, a neuroscientist and an author and a podcaster. He's sort of like a public intellectual that I follow. His name is Sam Harris. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work, but he's done, he does a lot of work on uh, mindfulness, uh, meditation, this sort of thing. But he also does a lot of commentary on on politics and, and social issues um, and also just science generally. He does a lot of things on uh, consciousness, especially uh, stuff to do with the brain. Um, so I would love to have a, a conversation with him. Um, so he would he would have to be one of them. Um, and then I feel like the other the other person would have to be Isaac Newton, I guess. I just feel like he's such an interesting figure and just contributed so much to science. It would just be so cool to inform him on all of the things that have happened with gravity and nice. gravitational waves and how far we've come. It's like I feel like I could tell him some stuff that he would then be like, oh, shit, like mind blown about. And then we could just talk about how it was that he managed to accomplish so much in the field of science at such a young age like it really blows my mind when you consider just how much he contributed to the field so he has to be like the greatest scientist of all time um and so i'd have to to pick him uh as a deceased uh, um passenger with me and then yeah I, I would definitely love to have sam harris just because i find him to be like a very great conversationalist uh, in his podcast and i'm sure the conversation between those two guys would be pretty crazy and then that would be really cool too yeah. i could set up yeah yeah awesome uh, man so why don't you give a shout out to uh, where people can find more of you uh, where you put your content and all that good stuff and then we'll for sure uh so um my youtube channel if you just search for jeff nippard on youtube or go youtube.com forward slash jeff nippard you'll find me there um, I also have a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. It's called Ice Cream for PRs. So it's ice cream and then the number four PRS. And uh, I'm active on Instagram. Uh, it's just my name, Jeff Nippard. And then you can also add me as a friend on Snapchat. Again, just Jeff Nippard. So everything's pretty simple. Yeah, you kept it smart with just the name, man. Exactly. So thanks again for jumping on the podcast and uh, we'll catch you next time. Yeah, it was my pleasure, Cody. Thanks for having me. If you love the Mind vs. Muscle podcast, want more free content, and you want to support the movement, share this podcast and leave us a five-star rating and review. To get your questions answered on the next episode, see the show notes for our social media handles and hashtag Mind vs. Muscle.